Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Carl Helvey, RN, who is author of You Can Beat Lung Cancer. Today we will discuss surviving lung cancer with alternative interventions. Carl is a registered nurse with two master's degrees from the University of California and Johns Hopkins University, and a doctorate in public health and wellness from Johns Hopkins University, as well as 60 years of experience as a nurse practitioner, educator, author, and researcher. He has been recognized with the Distinguished Career in Public Health Award from the American Public Health Association in 1999, and listings in Who's Who, Who's Who in Virginia, Who's Who in American Nursing, Outstanding Educator in America, Men of Achievement, American Men and Women of Science, as well as a listing on Wikipedia. He has published eight books and contributed four chapters to four additional books. He's a 39-year lung cancer survivor who, after being given six months to live by conventional medicine personnel, turned to national interventions. Carl, welcome. Thank you, Elena. I'm happy to be with you. This is a topic that I think probably has a lot of controversy built into it because there's so much comfort attached to conventional medicine. Mm -hmm. Before we get started on the nuances of alternative interventions, do you have some statistics that you might share with us about cancer and lung cancer? Mm -hmm. Well, cancer is the second leading cause of death in the United States following heart disease. Lung cancer is the major cause of death for all cancers. They estimate that one in every four people in the United States will be affected by lung cancer at some point in their life. There are, well, in 2010, they estimated 215,000 new cases of lung cancer. So it's a major problem and the statistics worldwide are very similar and since smoking is one of the major causes of lung cancer as more and more women started smoking the rates with women uh, were catching up with men and the rates in other countries were catching up with the United States so lung cancer especially is still a major problem what is cancer? I know that sounds like a really basic question, but it seems that cancer is a lot of things rather than just one single thing. Would you help us understand that? Well, there's so many definitions of cancer, and it used to be that uh, cancer was where the cells went wild and were reproducing uh, defective cells. I think more recently people uh, look more at a different approach and talk more about how we bring on cancer and that is that we compromise our immune system with the food we eat, with, uh, with the lack of supplements, the lack of uh, vitamins the lack of exercise, some of the things that we control in our lives that lead up to not only cancer but to other diseases. And I think that what uh, people now are trying to talk about in a more functional approach is there are things that we do in our lives that compromise our immune system, that bring on diseases including cancer, and that there are things that we can do to prevent this. So I think they're putting the the causal factors kind of back on the individual, which is where I think it belongs. In terms of which way to go, in other words, the conventional medicine, and I'm struggling for words, mm -hmm. versus the alternative medicine, how do we define that? Which is which? Well, conventional has been uh, chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation. This has been the triad for conventional therapy for at least back in the 30s. 
there have been many people who have had cancer cures using a whole different approach, starting back, the first one that I know of was Harry Hoxie in the 30s, and he used all natural herbs and was so successful that he was a threat to the medical convention profession, and consequently, they were always going after him, and he would end up in jail, and then he'd carry $100 bills, and they'd put him in jail, he'd get back out, they'd put him in jail, he'd get back out. Finally, the federal level appointed a 10-member group of physicians that reviewed his records, talked with his patients, etc., and they concluded that he was providing a higher standard of care. He was having greater success than the traditional. And so he was exonerated by this group, but he still was harassed, so he moved to Mexico. Then there was another, the next one that I know of was Renee Case, who was a nurse in Canada who got an herbal remedy from the natives which she had a lot of success. So here are two natural. Up to the current day when the physicians are using things like vitamin C, IV, they're using um, uh, herbs and they're using earth metals. Um, For example, Dr. Forsyth, who wrote a chapter in my book, was using uh, pawpaw which was a supplement from trees, but then he moved to poly-MVA, and then he added some homeopathic um, uh, components to that. And he's having, for example, 46% success with all cancer patients that are stage four, five-year survival compared to the traditional, which is 2% for stage four, five-year survival with chemo, radiation, and surgery. So some physicians are using an, uh, a combination of the traditional with the alternative, and they tend to call that integrative. Um, an example would be um, insulin uh, potentiation therapy where they have found that cancer thrives on sugar because cancer cells like a non-oxygen environment and it takes 15 times more sugar for them to uh, continue to thrive than it does if you metabolize sugar in an oxygen environment. So they need 15 times more sugar than normal cells. And so they found that if they drop the blood sugar level by giving insulin, then the cancer cells are barely thriving. And then they give glucose, but they may add to it a one-tenth dose of chemotherapy. And then the cancer cells open up to get the glucose, and they take in the chemotherapy. But they may also, instead of chemotherapy, use vitamin B17 or some other natural uh, product. So this means that they're combining the traditional chemotherapy with this insulin, you know, therapy, which is an alternative. So it seems that there are many physicians now that are using the alternative which is more natural and having much greater success and at the same time there's research coming out that shows that chemotherapy for example actually spreads the cancer so I have talked with people and interviewed people that say they think that chemotherapy is slowly on its way out and in the future probably will not be used The other thing is there's more and more research on the diet as a major factor in uh, cancer prevention and treatment. And so I think that diet will begin to play much more of a role in the future than it has in the past. 
or all of these things that you've mentioned, Carl, are they specific to lung cancer or do they apply to cancer in general? No, they apply to cancer in general. Now, I mentioned Dr. Um, Forsythe having 46% survival five years with stage four. His survival with his interventions for lung cancer is 39%. The problem with lung cancer is that usually there's no symptoms until you're at stage three or four, and then it's much more difficult to treat, and that's also why the death rate is much higher. And so the um, survival rate is also lower with all, all of the treatments for lung cancer. The, let's say, average person, then how would someone find out that they have lung, lung cancer? Do they just go for a general checkup and it comes up in the results? It, uh, you said stage two or three? Right. At stage two or three, you would have uh, probably some pain. You might be bringing up, you might be coughing a lot. You might be bringing up some blood in the sputum. Any of the things that affect the lungs are going to be problematic at uh, stage three or four. Uh, when I had lung cancer 38 years ago, I had first a chest X-ray, and then it was followed up with a biopsy. Now they have CAT scans and PET scans and all different types of scans that will pick up things. But again, they may not pick it up as early as one would like. How did you decide back then? I think you told me that the 39-year mark has just passed. How did you decide 39 years ago to break with convention and not go through the triad that you just shared with us, mm-hmm. but look for alternatives. Would you share a little bit about that with us? I think there's a couple of reasons, Elena. One is that I had seen cancer patients that were very debilitated when they had chemotherapy or when they had radiation or even when they had surgery. Uh, I had seen people that, um, when I worked at Bellevue in New York City, uh, people, a man that had throat cancer and his jaw was removed. I've seen things comparable to this, and I felt like they may have saved someone's life, but what quality of life is that? Or I've seen people that were ill, lost their hair, couldn't eat, etc., during chemotherapy. Again, it's so debilitating. What quality of life is that? The doctor told me I had six months to live. I figured if I'm only going to live six months and I'm not in bad shape right now, why would I subject myself to that when I can use natural things that may or may not help, but at least I'm not going to be debilitated during that six months? That journey that you chose that unconventional medicine, let's call it journey, ended up saving your life because the doctors had said, the conventional medicine doctors had said that you only had six months and by following a different path, you managed to to survive and healthy and to a, a long life. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't easy, was it? You talk about some of the challenges along the way in your book about how sometimes the treatment items, I think it was uh, apricot seeds Mm -hmm. or kernels, uh, were being pulled because uh, some of the conventional medicine folks felt threatened. Would you tell us a little bit about that journey? Well, I didn't have a lot of problems, Elena, when I actually was going through the treatment My doctor uh, had been very successful at the National Cancer Institute using vitamin B17 or the apricot kernels and the laetrile that's made from that. But the government closed him down because he was so successful. So then he went into private practice and continued providing the service for people and we, I signed forms that I would not report him. He was a very brave physician to 
buck the system because he wanted to save lives, and he did save lives, but unfortunately, five years later, his license was taken by the Virginia Board of Medicine, and I don't know whatever happened to him, but his only crime was that he was saving lives. But he told me where I could get the Laetrile, where I could get the pancreatic enzymes, etc. And within five years, that pharmacy had also been uh, closed down by the government. So I didn't have problems getting the Laetrile and the, and the apricot kernels and all. But it was after that that when I wanted to periodically use some as a preventive thing, because the theory of vitamin B17 is that it's a deficiency. So I felt like periodically I should take some to replenish what was missing in my body. And that's when it was difficult because they would uh, raid places and take them, take the apricot kernels and take the laetrile. Even as recent as a month or so ago, there was an article where the government raided a clinic in Oklahoma that was providing uh, alternative treatments. And there was a man that they discussed in the article who was using Laetril, and they he had bought it, and they took it from him. So he was very upset because he was using that as part of his own treatment. I had an email at one point from a woman in Australia telling me that they had confiscated her Laetril that she was importing into the country. Immigration had had taken it, and her husband had been using that as part of his treatment. Fortunately, I knew one person in Australia that I had interviewed And he was a professor, and I contacted him, and he told me that if she contacted this particular doctor in the town she was in, and that if he wrote a prescription for it, and she took that to immigration, then she could get her Laetrile, which she did, and she was able then to get it. So sometimes people have been able to work it out. Sometimes they just haven't been able to get it. There is a site or a couple sites now where it's available, but I usually don't give this out if someone wants has cancer and they want to use it. Then I will give them the information in a an email, but I don't like to publicize it because I'm afraid that they will close down these places and then there won't be any way to get it. So these challenges are not a thing of the past. This is still going on today. That's right. Now, Dr. Forsyth, that wrote a chapter in my book, I told you that he is so successful having 46% five-year survival stage four cancer patients as opposed to 2%, which is the uh, percentage for the chemo surgery radiation. And they went after him, and they tried to take his license, but he told me, he said they couldn't take my license, so they tried to bankrupt me. And he said it cost a lot of money to support, I mean, to defend myself. But he came through, and he's having higher rates now, I understand, than what he was having when he wrote my chapter. Now, I will be seeing him at the end of next month in Los Angeles, um, where I'm giving a paper, next month being August uh, 2013. And he is giving... He's on the same um, program that I'm on, giving uh, cancer patients, I mean cancer uh, presentations. So I will see him, and I'll catch up then on what's happening as far as his uh, rates. But I understand that he's having higher success rate now than he was previously. It seems incredible, I can't find a better word, that... Treatments that are not causing harm and are resulting in improvement, if not cures, which in some cases we're seeing a very mm-hmm. high rates from mm-hmm. what you and the doctor and, and many others have shared, are in fact long-term cures, would be shut down. Do you have any insights on what is driving this? 
Well, there is a book called The Politics of Cancer. There's another book called uh, The Politics of Healing. Both go into very specific information. Um, they It goes back to some of the very influential families in this country that got control of the medical schools, um, that got into the medical schools, gave money, and in return got on the curriculum and it helped determine what was being taught, and that's how chemo, radiation, and surgery became the triad. I think a lot of physicians have not been exposed to alternative, but they have been ingrained into that. In addition, the drug companies make so much money. The Cancer Society stays in business because of cancer. The doctors, they buy the chemo wholesale. They sell it retail. They get paid for administering it. Cancer is a multi-billion dollar industry. A lot of people make a lot of money from it. And even the politicians, through lobbying and all, make money. And consequently, there is a strong push toward the status quo. And unfortunately, it's the patient that suffers in the end because they don't, 2% is not much to look for if you're a stage 4 cancer patient or lung cancer patient. So it's the patient that suffers in the end. But fortunately, I try to be very, stay optimistic. We have more and more naturopathic physicians. We have the Cancer Alternative Center at the federal government that's carrying out research on a lot of the natural alternative interventions. We have more and more alternative interventions. So the people, the public, are using more and more alternative. I think it's something like 40% of uh, the public use some alternative interventions. So I think that there is a strong force toward moving away from chemicals to the natural interventions. At the same time, you've got this force to maintain the status quo. And at some point, that balance is going to tip in favor of the natural and in favor of the patient. It appears that we have the beginnings of a physician shortage, that there are not enough general practitioners to meet the needs of the population numbers, especially as the baby boomers age what impact do you think that this lack of physicians and this standardized treadmill sort of medicine that we're seeing is having or likely to have in the coming years on people finding their way beyond that 2% survival rate? Mm-hmm. I think that things will evolve to fill the gap which always has happened. Uh, there was a point when physicians, there was a shortage and the physician's assistants came into effect. Nurse practitioner started functioning. So there's always something that evolves to fill a gap. And I think that with the traditional physicians, especially the internists, there will again be a another group of people that will come about. And I think that it may be for the better. And I'm thinking of one thing that I hear more and more about, and that is medical intuitives. And my belief is God provides all kinds of resources for those of us that listen. And I go back to when I first had cancer. I went for the x-ray because I had a dream. And to me, that's one way that God speaks with me if we listen. So I had a dream, and that is how I discovered, probably at stage one or two, that I had lung cancer before it got to the point where it would have been difficult to treat. So I think God provides many resources, and I try to use 
resources that are available. And so I have used a medical intuitive who, when I had a problem walking, and he was able to pick up what the deficiencies were in my body and what I should use to correct it over the phone from Canada. Now, to me, this is amazing. And I did what he told me, and that was successful. And there are physicians that are using medical intuitives now as part of their practice. So that is one group that is coming about. I interviewed a woman in England. I'm sorry, she was in England. No, I'm sorry, she was in Germany. But she's from Australia. And she also thinks that there are new diagnostic tools that are in the works that are going to be much more specific as to what types of natural interventions can be used with particular individuals. For example, the vitamin B17 worked for me, but she's saying that that might not work for other for everyone because we have antibodies for certain things and they're now able to identify who the vitamin C will be successful with. And so there won't be this business of the patient having cancer and then it seems to go into remission and then two years later it's back and they're treating again. So that will take a load off the medical group if they're able to bring about a cure where there's no relapses with it. And she says that they are perfecting this so much that they can figure out what types of treatments are going to be successful with that particular patient. Uh, I think nurse practitioners may take on more um, and there may be more nurse practitioners. Uh, I know that here in Virginia, that I had, when I had my nursing center, the nurse practitioner was able to prescribe everything except narcotics. And there was a physician on call that she could call whenever she had a question, which she rarely did. And protocols were set up that she could follow and once a month, the physician reviewed a sample of the records to make sure that she was following the protocols that they had agreed upon. So I think the nurse practitioner is another avenue for fulfilling some of this shortage. Uh, and nurses, I think, tend to be a little more holistic in their approach. And I think that is also good um, I know that when I had my center, I did a study, and the physician spent about five minutes with the patient, and the nurse practitioner spent about 30 minutes with the patient. But they were doing a lot of other preventive um, diagnostic things that in the long run would benefit the patient. Carl, would you go back a moment and explain or help us by defining what a medical intuitive is. I sort of get the idea from what you're mm -hmm. saying, but can you put a little context to it? I really can't do too much more. I only know that my experience with this man, um, and he was in Canada, and a friend um, asked if I would like to talk with him, and when we talked, he told me he uh, went through all of my organs in my body and he told me like my thyroid was operating at 25%. My adrenals were operating at 40%. So those were two of the problems. And then he told me what I could take for these. So I'm taking Lugo solution that handles the thyroid, and I don't remember now what I took for the um, adrenals, but I took it, and by, and then once a month I talked with him, and my um, 
tests went up to they were at, at both at 95 percent uh, the last time that I talked with him, which was about three months ago, because I was talking with him every month. He also would go through and look at the vitamins, my vitamin D3 level, my vitamin A, my vitamin C, the minerals, etc. This is a very important thing because, you know, it's very expensive to have a test that would determine where you are in terms of all of the supplements and the vitamins and minerals that one needs in their life. So I don't know how he does it, but... Uh, I mean, I, all I know is that when I talk with him, he must somehow pick up the energy from my voice through the phone and is able to somehow, uh, you know, examine my body and all as a result of that. But I, I don't know anything more about it. I just know it worked for me. Carl, just to make sure that I understand... This individual is someone that you never met and that didn't no. have access to your medical information no. or your medical records. No. You just no. spoke to him on the phone and he diagnosed your level uh-huh. of deficiencies and your organ. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. No. I had never met him. My friend who uh, suggested him knows me, but I mean, she doesn't know anything about my medical history or anything because she's not in the health professions. Uh, She's an educator. And so he knew nothing about me. Uh, I'd never met him. I still haven't met him. We just talked on the phone. And And you confirmed that the information he was giving you, how did you measure whether you were having the results that your vitamin levels were increasing, etc. Did well, you I've use a third-party company? I've had vitamin D uh, testing, etc. Uh, since. Unfortunately, I'm only allowed to go to the doctor once a, a year now um, because he tells me that with the current health care that if you don't have major sick problems, you can't go more than once a year for health promotion and prevention, which I think is a shame because previously I was going every four months for labs that would determine my vitamin levels and some of that. But now I go once a year for a physical, and my doctor now uh, doesn't believe in a lot of the natural things, so um, it's mainly a physical, but I do talk him into doing uh, liver function and into doing vitamins. And uh, so I did have some follow-up with that. But I also, it was from the symptoms because my legs would hurt. I'd have spasms, uh, contractions. And after uh, I'd been on the Lugo solution and uh, taking more potassium and calcium and magnesium, uh, that all cleared up. I don't have. I haven't had any of those problems in probably six, seven months. You also talked earlier about diet as a factor. Nutritionists cite all number of studies that point to a reduction in serious medical chronic diseases, mm-hmm. just as a result in a change in lifestyle, meaning exercise and diet. What would you add to that, or what specifics can you share with us? Well, I know that uh, green leafy vegetables are a preventive for um, lung cancer. Soy is a preventive. It decreases the risk for lung cancer. Uh, Soy is a very controversial uh, product, and I had a physician that I asked to write a an endorsement for my book, and he refused because the nutritionist had written that soy was very good in terms of preventing and treating cancer. And as a result, he wouldn't write an endorsement because he told me he'd been working for 15 years to tell people not to take soy. But 
more and more research shows that soy is important as far as cancer. And I think that maybe what the problem is, is that most of the soy is genetically modified. And so I take lecithin, which is a non-genetically modified soy product. And I've taken this. I took this when I had lung cancer, and I've taken it ever since. I think that it's very good. An example, another example of something I take, I take pomegranate, and the research shows that pomegranate will prevent prostate cancer, or if you have prostate cancer, it will reduce the size of the tumor. Uh, Fruit and vegetables, I have probably... 30 or 40 pieces of research on my website on the value of these for different types of cancer. And one thing that I have found recently that's, again, controversial is the omega-3 fat, fatty acids. And there was an article that I have put on my website last week, I believe, that they think that it may increase the risk of prostate cancer. However, I have found that if I stop my omega-3 and I stop my vitamin E, that I get dry eye because I spend so many hours on the computer. And once I pick those up again, the dry eye clears up. So I think that, you know, sometimes things may affect one part of the body in a positive way and another part of the body in a negative way. And another example would be the ketogenic diet that is now being used for, by some people for cancer, which is high fat, high protein, as opposed to the diet that I had, which was no protein, but was primarily fruit, vegetables, grains, and nuts. Well, the only protein, there was no animal protein, I should say. And I think that the ketogenic diet, because it does not include sugar, is probably a good thing. But on the other hand, I can't help but believe that that may have a negative effect on one's kidneys because that's a lo- that's very difficult to, you know, uh, absorb in the body and to excrete from the body. So I think that a lot of times things that may be positive for one thing may be negative for another. What about exercise? Do you think that it's important? Does Is there any relationship? Are there any studies that indicate a relationship between exercise and cancer or cancer survival? Again, I can't quote uh, studies, but I have put studies on my website that uh, show the value of exercise for both preventing and for treating. And I think one of the things, the one thing I do remember, and I remember this because my favorite actress, Ingrid Bergman, had lymphedema as a result of having a breast removed, and she talked about how painful it was to raise her arm and how it swelled and all. And they used to advocate not exercising that part of the body, but now they're finding that it is better to exercise than it is just to not exercise it. So as far as overall exercise, you know, it produces the endorphins, it makes you your mood is better. Um, it improves your circul- circulation, your digestive system. Everything else is so affected by exercise, and the research shows that it does have an effect on cancer. Let's go back to sort of the beginning of the diagnosis and the your you've discovered that you have cancer, that you have lung cancer, or that a loved one does, and you don't want to go through the conventional 
triad that you mentioned, chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, but your doctor favors those. What do you do? I think one needs to be very strong in order to do the alternative, uh, and especially back when I did, because God, the doctor was God then, and my mother, who I knew loved me, said, well, why don't you just do what the doctor wants you to do, and then you do these other things. My colleagues, who were all nurses, again, thought the doctor's word was it. And so they, again, if they would talk with me at all, would say, well, why don't you do what the doctor wants you to do? Um, I couldn't do that because I prayed about it, I watched my dreams, and I believed that I had direction from God, and my direction was to use all natural I think that now, again, it's almost as difficult as it was then. And an example that was very close to me, my brother, who was 91, was chopping wood last spring, raised, growing his own fruit and vegetables in his garden, square dancing, walking, very active, and in the fall started having some pain in his chest, he went to the doctor. The doctor was pushing radiation, told him that he wouldn't survive chemo because of his age. So he could reduce the size of the tumor with radiation. So I didn't feel I could interfere with the relationship with his doctor, but I did ask my brother if he would take Laetrile, and I figured because were related that genetically the laetrile would work with him as well as it did with me. And he agreed to do that, but his memory had gotten bad, and I don't know how much he was he took it. So they gave him five days a week for five weeks radiation, a 91-year-old man. He lost 65 pounds. He developed bed sores on his uh, buttocks because the fat was gone and the bone was rubbing against the skin. He had no energy. Then a couple weeks after they stopped the radiation, he got up to go to the bathroom during the night and couldn't walk, and they put him in the hospital. And they uh, did a CAT scan, and they found that the tumor had not shrunk at all. They told him they could do chemotherapy now. And yet, early, they had said, well, he couldn't tolerate the chemotherapy. But fortunately, my niece said, I do not want any more treatment. He has suffered enough. I just want him to be comfortable. If it means giving him narcotics so he's comfortable, I want that. And so he went into hospice. Within two weeks, he was in coma, and within two weeks, he died. And I believe that had he had alternative treatments, that he could have been around longer because he was in such great shape before, you know, he started the chemotherapy and all. Uh, I said he chopped wood three days a week, and when I asked him one time about this, he said, well, I have to stay in shape. So he was chopping wood three days a week. You know, I couldn't do that, but he was doing that. He was eating healthy because he was growing his own fruit and vegetables. It wasn't genetically modified. There was no growth hormones or anything else in it. And I think that he could have lived longer, but he could not go against what his doctor wanted him to do. And I think many people that I talk with that contact me, they have the same thing. They'll say, you know, but I can't go against what my doctor tells me. And so, you know, if that's what people want, then I support it because I believe that people need to make the decision about what type of treatment they want for their own bodies. But I just try to make sure that people know there are alternatives and that these have been successful. And
and then it's up to the person to make that decision. But it's very difficult to go against medical advice. What about those people who choose to do that? Where do they find physicians? Because there are physicians who believe in alternative and integrative methods and mm-hmm. holistic methods and a combination of lifestyle and nutrition as the point of departure. How do they go about finding those physicians? Well, there is a an organization of naturopathic physicians, and they can always get in touch with that organization, and they list the naturopathic doctors by state, and most of these physicians work with natural ways to deal with, you know, different problems. Some of them specialize in oncology. And so if it were me and I didn't know anyone, I would go on that website. I'd start there. I would look for a naturopathic doctor in my area of the country, and then I would find out if they specialize in oncology. And then I would probably start with that person. What suggestions, what tips would you share with our listeners, Carl, that they can take back to their lives to stay healthy and cancer-free? Or if there's someone in their lives, they themselves, who is suffering from cancer, lung cancer, that they can best approach this situation? What, say, three to five tips would you share with them? Well, first of all, I think is the your diet. I think the diet is more important now than it was 39 years ago because we did not have the genetically modified foods, the growth hormones, and all of the pollution in our food. And I think anyone that wants to prevent cancer or has cancer at this point needs to either eat strictly organic food or locally grown food if you know the farming practices of the person that you're buying from. Now, for example, I live on an island and there's a road um, that goes to the main highway and there's three different families that grow vegetables and I guess, yeah, they do have fruit in their backyard and they put the excess out on a table They have an honor system. They have a scale where you can weigh. They have a box where you put your money. And I buy from them because I know that they're they're not modifying their food and they're not using growth hormones and all. I sometimes will buy at the farmer's market because I get to know who the farmers are. And so in the summer, that's a good source because it's not quite as expensive to buy the locally grown and actually, it's better for you if your food is locally grown because you know it's fresher, it's not being transported. And uh, like the water that we drink, so many people drink the bottled water, but when it's transported, if it's not in a air-conditioned environment, the plastic melts into the water, and that is also a cancer uh, you know, a cancer factor, the um, the BPA in the of the containers. The second, so I think the diet is very important. I think people should stay very much with fruit, vegetables, minimal uh, meat. I don't eat meat at all. I don't eat beef. I haven't in probably 25 years. Uh, I eat uh, some chicken. I eat some... Um, seafood, but I don't eat farm-grown because of the toxins, and I'm careful about how much of the seafood I eat because of the mercury. Then exercise that we mentioned, I think exercise is very important in one's daily life that people need to find the time to, uh, even if it's walking, to do some sort of exercise. I think supplements are very important because it's not possible to get all of the things that we need in our food supply because the ground and all is polluted and so the food is not as um, it does not have the nourishment that it did in the past. 
I think that we should not lose track of our spiritual selves and our mental selves. So I think that faith and optimism are very important in preventing cancer and in treating cancer. And I think that staying active, because I know many cancer patients that are have survived, but then they worry that it's going to come back. But I thought, well, I didn't have time to be worrying about it because I was teaching, I had my students, I was writing, I was doing research, I was doing all this stuff. I didn't have time to be thinking about myself. I was thinking about all of the, my life, and I knew that God was going to take care of it anyhow. And so worrying does not help anything because as we're negative, we attract negative things in our life. So I think that it's important to focus on a holistic approach that includes the physical, mental, spiritual. Uh, I use affirmations sometimes. I did visualization. Um, of course, I do prayer every day. I meditate every day. I try to serve others. And I try, one of my big faults is patience. I'm not patient at all especially when I get in my car. I want to get where I'm going, and I want to get back home. And it seems like there's always someone in my way. And so I work hard on trying to be more patient, and that, I think, has been a lifelong lesson for me. Thank you, Carl, for joining us from Hampton, Virginia. Thank you, Elena. I enjoyed being with you, and I thank you for this opportunity. It's a great pleasure. I hope it was okay for you to be on the other side of the microphone this time. (laughs) It's different. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Carl Helvey, RN, who is author of You Can Beat Lung Cancer Using Alternative Integrative Interventions, who discussed surviving lung cancer with alternative interventions. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicMPR.com. That's editor at HispanicMPR.com.